thank you, Trent, for agreeing to be on my podcast. I was chatting on a live feed a little bit earlier, and I said um, to people that were listening that we struggled to actually set this up because as soon as we set a date, one of us had to cancel due to work commitments. So um, it's taken quite a while for us to, to get this scheduled. And yeah, thank you for taking the time. I'm excited to chat to you. So I don't know if you want to maybe give us a little bit of background about yourself and how you ended up doing what you're doing. For people that you know are, are listening uh, or watching on the live feed, maybe don't know, you are a bespoke knife maker in amongst all kinds of other things that you do. <laughs> do you want to dive in and just give us a bit of background? Yeah. So um Man, I was uh, lucky enough to get introduced to uh, a good friend of mine, Niels van through a through a mutual friend of ours. And I started dabbling in knife making and um, I went on one of Niels's courses and uh, learned a bit of bladesmithing there. And then from there, I kind of gave it a break for a little while. Then I bought a grinder and so on and so forth and went to the Western Cape, which we'll get back to at another point but um, <laughs> yeah then I came back and I started my apprenticeship program with a guild member of the South African Guild Knife Makers Association. I started my apprenticeship program with him. I phoned him up and we started chatting and I said to him, "Hey listen, I'm looking to learn more about knife making and I said to him, I'm willing to work for you for free um, just for that knowledge and to basically expand upon the skills that that I already have in the knife making industry, which is few and far between, but they will improve in time. <laughs> so that's basically how I started out. So I'm still doing my apprenticeship program, and um, yeah, it's going well. Cool. Why knives? Because you were quite into bushcraft and all that kind of thing. Um, so you've got your Trail Tracker Survival companies. Tell us a little bit about that and how you then started making knives. Is that part of Trail Tracker or is it two parallel businesses? So, yeah, there's a long story behind why knives, why bushcraft and all of that. I grew up in KwaZulu-Natal and... Uh, I've always loved knives from a, for a very young age, watched Crocodile Dundee and all of those <laughs> sorts of things, my heroes back in the day. And um, I just love knives and the bush and the capability to live out in the bush and to understand not to work against nature, but to work with it and the knowledge thereof helps you to do that. So that was the sort of the progression from being passionate about the bush and wanting to explore and adventure and all of those sorts of things and then progress into bushcraft and then from there went into knife making as well i started i would say i started learning bushcraft properly about 11 years ago and then i've been teaching at basic bushcrafting for about eight years and then as i progressed um, i started teaching more extensive bushcrafting courses and things like that and i think that naturally knife making is just a, a natural progression from there um wanting to make a tool that that i've learned to use with relatively good results over the years <laughs> and um, it's just wanting to to make that tool it's a it's a it's a very interesting procedure to learn how to manipulate ma natural materials and then take more modern materials and make something in order to do the latter. In terms of the bushcrafting, obviously you're living in the city now. Are there skills in bushcrafting that people could maybe use in their kind of 
daily lives? I I think that in terms of city life, it's bushcrafting and and survival and homesteading and things like that. That all comes down to uh, sustainability or self-preservation. So I think that um, you know, for people who in the city who want to get more in touch with nature, but they're still in the city, I I think practicing some form of of uh, homesteading. Uh, would be the more viable way to go. Um, but there is a lot that you can take from learning to be um, resourceful out in the bush. And I think for me, at least, it's just the mindset. Uh, and I think really that's that's what we're all sitting with at the, at the moment is just having a bit of a difficult time, especially in the times that we're living in at the moment. Uh, mindset for me has always been a very big part, a very big part of the picture is just how you see yourself in the situation that you're in. And we can either, you know, be upset about it or be worried that we're not going to get out of this okay. But um, you control what you can. And for the rest of it, you have to just stay positive and try your best. You mentioned a little bit earlier that you were in the Western Cape. Um, that was, I think, last year, wasn't it? Uh, or the, the, yeah, the previous yeah, year? November, I think yeah, November. And you were involved in anti-poaching. So please, could you go a little bit more into that? Yeah, yeah. So um, I went to the, the Western Cape and I was working as a bushcraft instructor for a, a survival school called Rangers Survival Craft. And uh, my friend Jeffrey was uh, the main instructor. I was the secondary, secondary instructor for that school. But in addition to Rangers Survival Craft, he was also an instructor for Attack Track and back in the day, some other anti-poaching school where they train people. Now, I was privileged enough to learn from Jeffrey and privileged enough to get involved in the the anti-poaching. And uh, we did uh, a five-week stint out in the Western Cape on one of the reserves. Um, actually the Eastern Cape. And um, so we went out for five weeks out in the bush where we had to do training, extensive training every day. Uh, we had to wake up early, early hours of the morning at the at the sound of a shotgun, which was <laughs> quite, quite unpleasant. But um, yes, um, we did that. And then we had to go and do PT, lots of lots of exercise, and then go for a two and a half hour um, lecture on track, sign, trail, all different aspects of anti-poaching, concealment, when to use light, when not to use light, S- simple things that we just don't think about. I, I didn't I didn't think about them, especially coming from a bushcraft perspective, you use light when you need it, simple as that. Um, but this is sort of a more almost military tactical way of, of living out in the bush. And I learned a lot from that. But um, yeah, I wasn't exposed to it for a crazy long period of time. But five weeks out um, in Big Five territory, we slept out in uh, a boma that we had made with uh, acacia thorns. And I mean, it's pretty scary. It's, uh, <laughs> it's definitely not for the faint of heart. Yeah. But uh, it, it was a lot of fun and it was a lot of um, a lot of fun and a lot of good experiences came from that. I, I would imagine anti-poaching um, uh, here in South Africa, Rhino is the kind of main 
anti-poaching animal although i believe lions are becoming a, a problem as well yeah look we we were focusing on uh rhino but as well as uh the illegal bushmeat trade so um obviously the guys they they try and feed their families and so on and that's just their way of going about it but it is very very destructive all sorts of animals get caught in all sorts of snares about two weeks back i had my cat that goes into the bush up the road from me get caught in two snares so it just shows that snares are everywhere like mm. you don't expect them to be but um they're everywhere yeah. it's it's actually pretty crazy um one of the sweeps that jeffrey and i were doing we pulled about man it was about 12 snares in the space of half an hour and um, he was telling me about one of his uh, sweeps that he did with 93 students or something like that. They pulled out 350 snares in two hours. Holy crap. So, yeah, it's, it's a lot. It's a lot. With, with snares and with traps and things like that, coming from sort of a survival background, I understand that the success is in numbers. And they understand that too. So they set multiple traps, like crazy, crazy amounts in order to get some meat. But yeah, the illegal bush meat, obviously anti-poaching uh, anti regarding rhinos, that was obviously a big concern. But it's, yeah, as you said earlier, it's not just rhinos, there's, there's a lot of game that is really, really getting damaged by all of this. And it's, it's very sad. You suffer from epilepsy and I, I'm under the impression that you, you had to cut short the anti-poaching training that you were doing because of your condition. How has your epilepsy affected you in terms of what you do with your knife making and all that kind of thing? And, you know, in the greater sense of it as well. Yeah, sure. Um, I think... I think like with uh, a lot of sicknesses, people don't really uh, understand the full implications, the full effects or how it works, why it happens and all those sorts of things. And, and people are afraid of what they don't understand naturally. Um, so yeah, look, for the most part, I've found a lot of people to be very understanding. It's very scary when they see it. For them, it's, it's not something that they experience regularly. And um, I think that... Like for me, it's affected a large part of what I could do when I was younger, what I, what I can still do now, what I can't do now. And uh, it can be a very frustrating thing um, because you have to be careful of sports in general because uh, you can, you know, there, there's so many things that can trigger a, a seizure, you know, flashing lights, going to clubs, things like that. And everybody's different. So you can't categorically say, flashing lights is going to be you know a problem for all epileptics um you can't categorically say that alcohol is going to be a problem for all epileptics like so it's it's that frustration of trying to learn what what triggers yours stress excitement alcohol um extreme concentration that's something that I find for myself, if I'm concentrating for a very long time, I, I have a bad night, you know. But yeah, for the most part, I've found people to be very understanding. The more I think the more open you become about it and the more you help people uh, understand why it happens, uh, they, they become a lot less um, scared of it and a lot more understanding. I went on a trip with a, a friend of mine and um, I had a seizure out on the trip and I was flat the next morning. 
And we just sat around the fire the next day and we just spoke about it. And I think just not being ashamed of it and just being okay with the fact that you actually have this problem and dealing with it like that is, it's not easy and it's not easy to be open about, but you have to make peace with it. Mm. You know, it's, it's uh, a friend of mine, Dane in the Western Cape, he's got uh, diabetes. And that's a serious, serious problem for him. He went into a coma just a few weeks ago, and uh, now he now he's all right. But um, it's it's just an illness, like like any other illness, except with different circumstances and different frustrations and so on. Mm. So um, I think that especially for young people, it can be a very, very frustrating thing for for them to have to experience because of all the limitations put on them by doctors, by parents who want the best for them. But at the end of the day, it just causes a lot of frustration. Um, and once again, that's where mindset comes in. You know, it's uh, you can either pity yourself and say, oh, man, I've got all these problems. Or you can say, well, I've got it. How do I how do I live my life the best way I can, you know, within these limitations? So, um, yeah, that's that's at least the way I see it. Um, how does it impact your your knife making business? Because I'd imagine that um, knife making and um, epilepsy they're not exactly friends. So <laughs> it's it is a concern, especially when you're working with working with hot steel, working with power hammers, working with grinders, buffing machines, and things like that. It is definitely a concern. I'm I'm lucky in the sense that my my fits generally happen in the early mornings and sometimes late at night. But if I have a particularly bad day, it can happen, you know, in increments all throughout the day. So when that happens, I just try to be as careful as I possibly can and uh, pick, choose my battles. You know, mm. I was I was working at uh, Jack, the knife maker I'm taking my apprenticeship program with, and um, I was busy grinding and I felt one coming on. Now, not everybody has that luxury. So I just stood <laughs> back and stopped and Jack was like, are you OK, dude? I'm like, give me a minute. And then I was fine. Yeah. You know? So I have small seizures and then sometimes really big ones um, as well, which which stuff you up for a good couple of days. But um, we deal with it. So yeah. Yeah. I think it, it's mainly about just trying to keep as positive as possible. Mm. You know, it's it's a lot easier said than done, but. For the most part, positivity and having good people around you, yeah. having positive people around you who don't judge you for whatever it is that is happening to you. Um, I think that's that's key. Let's chat about your knife makings. How is business going for you? <laughs> business is going relatively well. Um, I think that it's it's hard in the beginning to to get your name out there. You know, because um, obviously people don't know what they're buying. They can't trust the fact that you're going to actually make a quality product. Yeah. Um, so most of my commissions have been through friends at this point. Um, there have been a few people overseas who've inquired about pricing and so on. And I'm getting more interest, but it's it's the long game. You know, you've got to play the long game. You can't get impatient with it and then give up, you know, because it's it's a journey like yeah. anything else it's not necessarily about the destination you just enjoy the process of doing what you love so yeah it's going good but uh 
it's still a long way to go. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's always a long way to go. Uh, as soon as you think that you have kind of made headway into something, something happens. I had my best month in March and then the lockdown happened. So, <laughs> um, wow. yeah. Yeah, yeah, you know, there's always something around the corner. So it's always looking for that next opportunity, I reckon. You were the ambassador for, and I'm probably going to say this wrong, uh, Moronive. Moronive? Yeah, Mora Knives, Mora Kniv, that's a sweet Swedish company. Um, I was an ambassador for them for about three years. I just found out the other day I'm still on the catalog list oh, wow, of okay. ambassadors. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so you're still the ambassador. How does that um, kind of affect you? I would imagine that you started networking in terms of knife making through being the ambassador for that brand. And that kind of got you into the knife making world. How do their knives compare to yours? I mean, obviously, this is more of a mass market product. It's branded, all that kind of thing, where yours are kind of bespoke one-off pieces. The quality, why would somebody come to you for a knife rather than buying one off the shelf? Um, so, yeah. So, back when I was an ambassador for Morik Neve, uh, the connection that we made was I was actually helping at um, Nielsen's table at Huntex. Uh, I can't remember when it was. But anyway, so I met the guys from Morik Neve at the stand. I had been using their knives for a long period of time. And I was speaking to them and... Um, I kind of made a joke with them and I said, hey, because I knew they had an ambassador program. And I said to them, hey, I'd, I'd love to get involved, man. And uh, they said, right, well, here's my card and, and we'll chat. I didn't think anything was going to come of it. But we, I, I kept uh, talking to Bjorn. He's since left uh, Morik Neve, but uh, I kept talking to Bjorn. And uh, next minute, the paperwork came through. I signed it and uh, happy days. But yeah, I used Morikini for a very long time because they specifically um, work on outdoor knives. That's their, their main focus. They do make kitchen knives. They do make carving knives. Carving knives also pretty much integrates into the outdoor industry. Mm. So lots of bushcrafting knives and Dave Canterbury being their global ambassador who is a survivalist. He's been on Deal Survival. He's been on all sorts of different TV programs and um, and he is a big bushcrafter. Now, that was a, a very nice step for me to go from, you know, almost nobody to getting some recognition in the bushcrafting community um, because when you have a name like Morikini behind you, it does make things a little bit easier. Mm. So what I would say about Morikini is that they are, yes, they are production knives, but they are good production knives and they are inexpensive for what you get. They really are not um, crazy expensive, depending obviously on what you get. You know, you, you've got the, the higher end knives, the Garberg, which is more expensive and then you've got the more uh, down the range kind of knives but those are all knives that i push through my company uh, trail tracker survival to help people get started in bushcraft mm. you know when you when you want to get started in knife making or bushcraft or whatever it is you maybe want to start with less expensive tools and work your way up from there because it's a lot easier for people to learn the capabilities of an inexpensive knife and then grow from there. I think that's, uh, that's a nice way to, to progress in your understanding of a tool. So yeah, so in terms of what would differentiate my knives from mass-produced knives is 
Um, I do want to get a range of knives going in the future, but that's, you know, long-term project. The whole thing about having a custom-made knife is it's exactly that. It's a custom-made knife. There is nothing else quite like it. Um, you know, if you, if you make, even if you make a range of the same knife, and it's made by a knife maker, all those knives are going to have, you know, whether that whether it's different steels, whether it's different uh, pinning material, whether it's different um, handle scales and things like that, all of those knives are going to be somewhat different because they're not mass produced. Yeah. You know, they don't have machines that robotically grind the bevels in. So there might be minuscule imperfections here and there but to say that again, it's knife makers these days are very, very good at what they're doing. I think it's I think it's just the individuality behind the piece that you get. You know that that's that's really all that you're selling is the the style, the individuality, and the brand of your product. Going through that process with you was quite interesting because you kind of said to me, what kind of style blade do you want? How about this? How about that? You said, uh, you know, we obviously would had a bit of back and forth. What kind of blew my mind and it makes so much sense in hindsight is the fact that you even asked me for hand measurements. You know, when you go into the shop to buy a knife uh, and I've bought really nice kitchen knives, you don't really think like, does this fit your hand um you feel what the knife feels like obviously but yeah um having that level of customization was something well i'm gonna sound really ignorant now but like i didn't realize that (laughs) it was to that level like measure your hand so that knife that you're making for me might not uh, be comfortable for somebody else to use because it's measured exactly for my specific hand um, shape and size. Right. It's very much like a, a tailor-made suit, you know. Um, someone of a similar body size could fit into that suit, but it's not going to fit the way it was tailored for you. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, I think I think that's. I mean, this is all stuff that I've learned from Jack, and I'm still learning from Jack. Is how the human hand, like once once you pick something up with your hand that feels comfortable, that feels right. That knife is already sold. Mm. That guy's going to pick that thing up. If it's at the right price, he's going to say, right, I want that knife because it fits and it works. So there's a lot of, you know, there's there's a lot to be said about comfort in general. But I think just having a knife that is comfortable in the hand to use is a big selling point already. Um, and if you can make that specifically for a person who wants, who wants a custom-made knife, I mean, that's that's just an extra selling point. So, yeah, um, yeah, it, it's. I mean, this knife for me that I'm holding right now, it works for me. But I would want a little bit more handle on mine. But yours, your hands are a little bit smaller than mine, mm. and that's that's the whole thing. It's it's going to work specifically for you. Mm. You know. Yeah. Moving away from the actual knives themselves now and uh, more back onto the business side, you've obviously done quite well 
on Instagram, you've got about 14 odd thousand, close to 15,000 followers. So you are like a, well, I suppose what they call a, an influencer. I haven't checked your Facebook, but I've, I've watched a couple of your live feeds and that kind of thing on Instagram. And you'll often announce like, I'm going to do a live feed on Facebook. This is all part of your, for lack of a better term, marketing. Do you get a lot of response off of both platforms? Do you use other platforms as well? You know, in terms of marketing, what you do, and we, we were speaking about it the other day and uh, about the live feeds and that kind of thing. And you said it's great to do live feeds because people get to know the person behind the brand, which obviously works fantastically well for micro businesses where there's like one person and you do everything. It's really difficult to have that kind of a following on all these different platforms and keep sufficient content coming to them to keep them engaged and keep your brand top of mind. So um, I'd love to know how you kind of go about balancing your um, your social media to keep that amount of people kind of, well, like I say, engaged and, and happy. Yeah, look, I mean, I think that um, for me personally, it's always been my endeavor to try and build a community behind the bushcraft, behind the mic making, behind everything that it is that I'm trying to do. Um, and I, I feel like I am a people, people's person. I enjoy engaging with people. I enjoy interacting with people. I love hearing when people say to me, that spoon carving video that you did, I really enjoyed that. And now I'm spoon carving. I bought a Morikneve uh, spoon knife and I'm doing this and this and this. It, that for me gives me more gratification than them ordering a knife. Like, you know, I just really enjoy getting inspired as well as other people getting inspired from what it is that I do. Mm. And, um, and I'm just very privileged to have a lot of people who enjoy what it is that I do and engage with it. But yeah, to find time to balance the production being productive as well as being engaging on on social media it's it's a bit of a difficult thing to do it's not uh, it's not a it's not a natural thing for for me at least you know mm-hmm. i try some days i'll be sitting in the workshop and i'll have a thought you know <laughs> and i'll be like maybe i should share this right and sometimes it's just catching up with people other times it's just showing them what I'm getting up to at this point in time, how I'm going to go about doing it. And because I do that, I've found people to be a lot more engaging with the posts that I do put out there. I've got a few orders from people saying, hey, can you make this? If so, how much? A lot of people just getting inspired and doing their own thing. You know, it's it's for me, that is the end game. Like, I just want to... If, if people get nothing else but inspiration from me making stuff, like, that's awesome. Yeah. That's that's really what that for me. You know, obviously, I want to make money and I want to make, you know, put bacon on the table. But, like, ultimately, it's about community for me. I And I know that sounds really, really cliche. But I without the support group of people who are interested in the same things, you have nothing. Yeah. You really have nothing. So, I as often as I can try to do, you know, giveaways and so on. I, I actually did a giveaway on this carving knife that I bought the other day. Um, that's going to a spoon carver in the States. And, um, you know, so just giving back like that's really just 
I think helps people to show that you do appreciate the the support and the um, and the community around it. I think what you do as well is quite it lends itself to interaction on these live platforms. I mean, if I look at what I do, I'm a writer, so I mean, watching me write is not exactly going to be um, engaging for an audience. So um... <laughs> yeah, no, no, look, look, it's. It's a that that's a difficult one because it's um, it appeals to to readers obviously but like how do you transfer that now into something to talk about over a live feed yeah, you know yeah. that's 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 more difficult you know and and I'm sure there's a way around it it's just how yeah, you know? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll let you know if I figure it out yeah um... you do <laughs> so. In terms of marketing and that kind of thing, uh, if I understand correctly, I mean, being a writer, I've studied copywriting, I've studied marketing, I've studied, you know, content marketing, all this kind of thing, which is what you're doing really well. But it seems that you're doing well without much of a plan, because like you said, um, you know, you have a thought and you you want to share it. When you study marketing, everything is about the plan and everything has to be planned down to the last detail and it all has to have kind of this um, return on investment and be measurable and all that kind of thing. That's not how you're doing it and you're still seeing quite a lot of success in terms of your interaction and getting orders off of your your marketing. So as somebody who's worked in marketing, it's quite interesting to me that you've achieved this without, you know, that kind of down to the last point plan for your your marketing do you just kind of like you say have a thought and say flip this is really going to be interesting this is going to does it ever cross your mind like shit this is going to be a really good live feed or is it just kind of let's just do this live and see what happens you know uh, it's funny that you mentioned that because like i used to be extremely concerned about my live feeds i used to be very concerned like I would think, okay, I'm going to do this live feed on Friction Fire, right? And then I'll be like, okay, so I have to explain this, this, and this. And I know all of this stuff, but as soon as I got in the live feed, I wasn't being myself because I was trying to be too informative, too too much information, right? And for people who are not necessarily interested in learning how to make a Friction Fire, it's boring, mm. okay? Now, I don't know anything about marketing. I really don't. I just... I, I I don't know if it was an epiphany or whatever, but I, I watch a lot of guys who do a, a lot of regular live feeds. And they mostly are craftsmen making bows, making knives, making uh, flint napping videos and all sorts of things like that. And I've seen those kind of people get a lot of engagement just from people who are interested in watching the process, interested in seeing something from design building it an actual finished project, you know? And for me, that's been, it's been a very difficult thing for me to do because I, I see guys like, you know, Dave Canterbury, all these big shots putting out proper, proper content. And I'm like, maybe I can't do that, but maybe I can do a, a more freestyle version of that, you know, just, and that's really what it's about for me is just trying to be myself, not trying to be, a smart ass or anything like that just really just engaging with people building that and then you've got something to build off of you know uh, i think the more comfortable people feel with you 
the more engaging they will be with you. Mm. And if they can, you know, I've, I've got friends in the States who I've never met, you know, and they're always on my live feeds and they're always supporting and uh, people in Ireland, people like, and that's, it's really, really cool. And everybody is just helping me in on this journey, which is, which is really, really great. Um, I've had so many people take time out of their day to say, Hey, but have you thought about doing it this way? Mm. Um, and I'm like, well, no, I haven't. Cause I really don't know what I'm doing when it comes to making a bow. Yeah. Like I had a bow project that I was working on the other day and I knew the wood wasn't the right wood to use, but I thought, Hey, you know what? We're going to crack at it. I prepared everybody for failure and yes, it failed, but you know what? I had a, a, a knife maker say to me, Hey, there's this guy who's in South Africa. He does make bows. He knows how to do it get in touch with them. And I, I have a contact. So that's where it's all at for me is just knowing people who know people who know people. And all this interaction and engagement is more rewarding than actually having a planned schedule thing where you can't be yourself. And, and I'm not saying you can't be planned and be yourself at the same time. I'm just saying, like, I find that difficult. Well, the couple of times that I've tried to... I mean, I'm super introvert. You know, the live feeds and that kind of thing is not really my forte. But right. what what you said exactly is, you know, if you're trying to be too formal and almost like this is a teaching moment for the people that are um, watching my feed, it really doesn't... It doesn't come across as natural and it seems stiff. As soon as you start just relaxing, it, it really does increase the uh, the watchability of that feed. So, yeah. 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 And, I, and I think as well that, um, you know, for people who don't know what what it is that you're talking about, but they are interested, if they feel that it's more like like on the fly freestyle you know you just you just being yourself they i think they would find it easier to ask a question that they may not feel like asking if it were more in teacher mode if you want to put it like that yeah. you know because um, nobody wants to feel stupid but sometimes you've got a question that you honestly don't know and uh and i mean i feel stupid all the time because i'll, I'll ask jack a question and he'll be like right this this and this and i'll be like okay yes that makes sense mm. right but if you don't ask you'll never know yeah um it's it's helping people to feel comfortable asking questions and um yeah cool this has been great um i think that we we'll probably look at ending off you are busy and um you need to get back to making my knife so um <laughs> <laughs> Um, so I'd like to end off with a, a little quick fire round of um, five questions. What is your definition of success? Happiness. Okay. Simple as that. Cool. That, that was like a super short. <laughs> cool. <laughs> what does the first hour of your day look like? Right. So I generally, like everybody else, I start my day off with a cup of coffee and I try to take some of that time while I'm having a cup of coffee just to think about what, I, what I've got to, got to do for the day. Sometimes I'll make notes as to things that I might forget. Other times I have a specific purpose in mind and I know that I've just got to get that done. Mm. So, yeah, just reflecting on the day at the beginning of the day. And that's pretty much how I started. Do you, uh, if you reflect on the day before, uh, do you do a run through of the day at the end of the day? Like review your day, so to speak? Um, 
when I haven't been particularly productive, I try not to do that because then it just makes me feel bad. Yeah. <laughs> but, but when I when I have been productive, and this is that's that's a really bad habit. Like you probably shouldn't do that. But but yes, like once I have been particularly productive, then I like to look at all the things that I've accomplished throughout the day, and that actually helps me roll into the next day with vigor and vim and um, get things done. So. Um, I, it's like everybody I'm sure is is very happy when they've accomplished what it is that they want to accomplish yeah and there's a lot of gratification that comes from that so if you had a good day yesterday and you roll into the next day saying okay cool let's go off that momentum I think that just helps the ball roll yeah yeah what do you do when you're not making knives is there a time when you're not making knives (laughs) because according (laughs) to your instagram it doesn't look like it (laughs) (laughs) it's it's constantly it's constantly on my mind there there are occasions where i'll watch a few series and things like that but predominantly i try to watch videos of other knife makers who face similar problems that i've encountered and that that is only going to help me in the future to progress and get past those problems or ask superior uh, craftsmen or knife makers the same questions and get a more detailed answer of that question. So um, I try to like watch a lot of forging videos, um, a lot of videos on uh, seating tangs inside of a handle, all those sorts of videos just to improve the craft as I as I start learning more. So that's what I try to do with my with my free time. Okay. And on occasion I'll draw a few daggers and things like <laughs> that just to you know, try and keep that ball rolling. <laughs> Mix it up. <laughs> <laughs> what do you rely on? Uh, well, I suppose this you've just answered this question for continued learning. Um you you obviously said you watch a lot of videos and that kind of thing. Um are there a lot of books on knife making? You've obviously got a mentor. So, yes. yeah, uh, what other channels do you rely on for continued learning? A lot of uh, inspiration that I get is from um, there, there's there's multiple little channel channels that I that I watch. But there's a guy called uh, his YouTube channel is called Simple Little Life, and uh, he does a lot of uh, knife making videos and so on. So I really like watching his channel. I also like watching um, Alex Steele. He does some really, really great videos and explains a lot of things that he's doing, which you get a lot of knowledge from. And um, there's a lot of books on knife making. I haven't really dabbled in all of that. I'm more visual. So I like to watch videos and learn from that. But yes, I am going to have to get down to the point where I actually read a book. (laughs) (laughs) I find that books, um, I mean, as you know, I'm, I'm a, a craft beer brewer and you get books and you get books because I've got a, a few and one is particularly great. I just kind of flew through it. I took so much information out of it. But another one, which is kind of like the, the beer making Bible, I just find it so dry and boring. And no matter how many times I've picked it up, um, I just cannot get through it. And, you know, a lot of these things are also like reference books. But even if you're reading a section that you're struggling with, um, sometimes I find it's just too technical. It's much easier to find a video or a, a blog post online explaining what you need um, rather than wedging your way through scientific speak. Yeah, I, look, I, th- I think for me, like I have to, I'm very productive in some ways and I'm very lazy in other ways. Like I want 
I want information. I want to. I want to ask a question, and I want the information. And it doesn't always work like that. Yeah. You actually have to go and search for that information sometimes. So I try to make time to say, okay, I want to know more about this. I'm going to actually read and force myself to read that and find the answer to that. It's sometimes a lot easier said than done because it's it feels like a chore. But for you to progress, sometimes you have to do the things that you don't like doing. Mm. And in knife making, there are a few things that I hate doing, <laughs> like hand sanding. Hand sanding is is soul destroying work. It really is. <laughs> but it's, I'm actually adding another little question in here, purely for my own interests, because my my business kind of came out this is now i'm going off on a tangent which i seem to do quite a lot um my my business started off as a blog and uh, i wrote about music a lot um, i'm a big music fan and all that kind of thing so i'm always interested to know what type of music you listen to um as you're working do you find music um assists you as you work or do you prefer silence or um and uh, then what type of music um if you do listen man in my younger years, I used to predominantly only listen to rock. Um, and while rock has stuck with me all the way through, I love rock. I love Metallica, Nirvana, all those all those good old bands. But I've got quite the eclectic mix of music that I listen to while I work. You know, I've got music from the 60s. I've got music from, you know, all the way through to common day times, right? But... Um, mostly mostly rock i would say mostly rock uh, mostly nirvana see the metallica those kinds of bands but i mix it up i never listen to the same thing once in in one day you know mm. i'll try and go from frank sinatra to see the to you know nat king cole to you know all these different uh schubert's i listen to uh i don't know if you saw that that video I did on uh, on Facebook of me seeing, uh, singing the Trouts. Oh, no, I didn't. <laughs> um, the de, de Forella. Um, so that's that's in German. And there's actually quite an interesting story behind that uh, that song. It's It was by, um, obviously by Schubert. The song was, was composed by Schubert. But the actual poem comes from a earlier poet who was very outspoken and so on. And... The whole poet, the whole uh, poem actually talks about this elusive trout that's swimming around in this clear water, and the fisherman is very uh, sad because he can't he can't figure out a way to actually catch this fish. And then he starts mudding up the water, and uh, eventually he catches the fish, and yeah, the fish dies. Yeah. Right. So, but. Uh, What's his name? Schubert left out the last part of the poem, which actually explains the whole story. Um, and the reason Schubert did that was so that both sexes could sing the song, male and female. Mm. But the whole poem goes that um, the last part of the poem goes that young women must be careful of evil intentioned men who wish to catch them. Oh, wow. So it's actually a very, very interesting song. Yeah. Um, and the history thereof. So, okay. That's, yeah. That's my last little bit for today. <laughs> I love backstories in music. It just gives the song yeah. so much, so much more meaning. And you know, and and that's across the board. Everything from, like you say, rock music to classical. If you know 
why it was written and the story behind it. It just gives it that depth that you don't hear if you're just listening on the on the surface. But right, absolutely. Yeah. Anyway, my favorite song at the moment is uh, is Creep by uh, uh, Radiohead. Oh yeah. Um, I'm loving. I'm yeah. I'm just loving listening to it over and over and over oh. at the moment. Uh, have you heard Corn's cover of it? Uh, they did an unplugged cover of Creep, which is pretty oh. pretty cool. I should definitely get that out. Yeah. The last question: um, If you could impart one piece of advice on how to live a life that's worth living, what would it be? No pressure. I would. <laughs> I, would I would say. <laughs> um, I would say to. Filter out the negative people in your in your life, uh, no matter who they might be or what benefits come with those relationships. Um, I think that a lot of our own insecurities are enough to live with as is. And um, unfortunately, I've had to do that. I've had to measure out how much time I spend with certain people and whether I'm willing to actually have them in my life and what do they actually do in terms of how they make me feel about myself. Mm. So I would say that to start off with, um, it's it's like a healthy diet. If you if you eat healthy, you you are healthy, right? Yeah. If you've got negative people in your life, you're just not going to be mentally healthy, in my opinion. Second bit is always believe in yourself, and I think that a lot of that that realization came from the hard times that I've faced in the past, doing things that I never thought I was capable of doing in the in the first place, seeing where I can push my limits to and growing from there, I would say don't be scared of opportunities to improve yourself. And then lastly, you're in charge of your own happiness. You know, nobody else is in charge of that. Mm. Cool. Where can people get hold of you if they would like to get hold of you? Yeah, people can find me at Trail Tractor Survival on Instagram, Trends and Standard on Facebook. And those are the two primary platforms that I actually post to. Cool. Um, yeah, that's about it. Okay. <laughs> cool. Thank you so much for taking the time. No, I really you. appreciate. It's... And yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to hanging out at some stage and having a couple of beers with you or something. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, definitely. It's it's uh, it's definitely it's something that needs happening um, because man, after this lockdown, I tell you what, man. I'm spending too much time with my cats, which is uh, detrimental <laughs> to my mental health. Um, so, yes, we do need to hang out. Awesome. Thanks again for, for taking the time. I really do appreciate it. And Thank you so much. Cool. Thanks. Uh, have a good Take one. Care. Cheers. You too. Okay. Bye. Take care. Bye. Bye. Follow the Business of Podcast on my website, megamillist.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to the YouTube channel at Megamillist. Connect with me on LinkedIn, Megan Darcy, M-E-G-A-N-D apostrophe A-R-C-Y. Chat soon.